Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome, everyone, to episode 70 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and I've got another crazy one for you guys today. We're going to hear about a female serial killer from Indiana. So let's just get right into the episode. Everyone, sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Belle Gunnis, born November 11th, 1859. She was nicknamed Hell's Bell. She was a Norwegian-American serial killer who was active in Illinois and Indiana between 1884 and 1908. Belle is thought to have killed at least 14 people, most of whom were men that she enticed to visit her rural Indiana property through personal advertisements. While some sources speculate her involvement in as many as 40 murders, Gunnis seemingly died in a fire in 1908, but it is popularly believed that she faked her death. Her actual fate is unconfirmed. Belle Gunnis was born, and I am going to butcher this name, Brynhild Polstadter Storith in Norway on November 11, 1859, to Paul and Barrett Storith. She was the youngest of eight children. She was confirmed at the Church of Norway in 1874. At the age of 14, Belle began working for a neighboring farms by milking and herding cattle to save enough money for passage to New York City. She moved to the United States in 1881. When she was processed by immigration at Castle Garden, she changed her first name to Bell, then traveled to Chicago to join her sister, Nellie, who had immigrated several years earlier. In Chicago, while living with her sister and brother-in-law, 
Belle worked as a domestic servant, and then she got a job at a butcher shop cutting up animal carcasses. She was at least five foot seven and weighed around 210 to 250 pounds, and she was physically strong and masculine in appearance. Gunnis married Mads Sorensen in 1884. The couple owned a candy store which later burned to the ground. Their home had also burned down, and both instances granted the couple insurance payouts. Two babies in the Gunnis home died from inflammation of the large intestine, which can result from poisoning. Bell had insured both of the children and collected a large insurance check after each death. Neighbors would gossip about the babies, since Bell never appeared to be pregnant. Sorensen had purchased two life insurance policies. On July 30, 1900, both policies were active at the same time, as one would expire that day and the other would enter into force. Sorensen died of cerebral hemorrhage that day. Bell explained that he had come home with a headache and she provided him with quinine powder for the pain. She later checked on him and he was dead. Bell collected money from both the expiring life insurance policy and the one that went into effect that day, making a total of $5,000. With the insurance money, she moved to LaPorte, Indiana, and she bought a pig farm. On April 1st, 1902, Bell married Peter Gunnis. The following week, while Peter was out of the house, his infant daughter died of unknown causes in Bell's care. Peter died eight months later due to a skull injury. Bell explained that Peter had reached for something on a high shelf and a meat grinder fell on him, smashing his skull. The district coroner convened a coroner's jury, suspecting murder, but nothing came of the case. Bell would then collect $3,000 in insurance money for Peter's death. Bell began placing marriage ads in Chicago newspapers in 1905. One of her ads was answered by a Wisconsin farmhand, Henry Gerholt, after traveling to Laporte, Gerholt wrote to his family, saying that he liked the farm, he was in good health, and requesting that they send seed potatoes. When they failed to hear from him after that, the fam family contacted Bell when she told them Gunholt had gone off with horse traders to Chicago. She kept his trunk and fur overcoat. John Moe of Minnesota answered Bell's ad in 1906. After they had corresponded for several months, Moe traveled to Laporte and withdrew a large amount of cash. Although no one ever saw Moe again, a carpenter who did occasional work for the Gunnesses observed that Moe's trunk remained in her house along with more than a dozen others. Her criminal activities came to light in April 1908 when the Gunness farmhouse in Laporte, Indiana burned to the ground. In the ruins, authorities found the bodies of a headless adult woman, initially identified as Belle Gunnis, and her three children. Further investigation unearthed the partial remains of at least 11 additional people on the Gunnis property. After the fire at the Gunnis homestead led to, this, to the discovery of bodies believed to be the Gunnises and her children, 
Laporte police authorities were contacted by Azel Helijin. Heli. I'm sorry, I'm messing up this name. Heljelian, who had found correspondence between his brother, Andrew, and Bell. The letters included petitions for him to relocate to Laporte to bring money and to keep the move a secret. A visit to the Gunnis farm by Azil was a former hired hand led to attention being paid off to soft depressions in what has been made into a pen for hogs. After briefly digging one of the depressions in the lot, a gunny sack was found that contained two hands, two feet, and one head, which Heljelian recognized to be those of his brother. Immediate inspection of the site revealed that there were dozens of such slumped depressions in the Gunnis yard, and further digging and investigation at the site yielded multiple burlap sacks containing torsos, hands, arms hacked off from the shoulders down, masses of human bone wrapped in loose flesh that dripped like jelly. From trash-covered depressions that proved to be graves, in each case, the body had been butchered in the same manner. The body decapitated, the arms removed at the shoulders, and the legs severed at the knees. Blunt trauma and gashes characterized the skulls that were found that had been separated from the bodies. Lucas Riley, quoting the Chicago Interocean in Mental Floss, noted that the bones had been crushed on the ends, as though they had been struck with hammers after they were dismembered and that quickline had been scattered over the faces and stuffed in the ears. After finding the parts of five bodies on the first day, and an additional six on the second, some in shallow graves under the original hog pen, others near an outhouse or lake, the police stopped counting. With these discoveries, the perceptions of Belle Gunnis, as reported in the newspaper descriptions of a praiseworthy woman, dying in the fire that consumed her house and a desperate attempt to save her children were re reassessed. Despite the initial success with the identification of Andrew Helijelian and despite the fact that widening news coverage of the mass murders invited inquiries from families with men that had gone missing, most of the remains could not be identified. Ray Lampfear was Gunnis's hired hand an on-and-off lover. In November of 1908, Ray was convicted of arson in connection with the fire at the Gunnis' house. Ray later confessed that Bell had placed advertisements seeking male companionship, only to murder and rob the men who responded and subsequently visited her on the farm. Ray stated that Bell had asked him to burn down the firehouse with her children inside. He also asserted that the body thought to be Bell's was in fact a murder victim, chosen and planted to mislead investigators. The brother of one victim had warned Bell that he might arrive at the farm shortly to investigate his brother's disappearance. According to Ray, this impending visit motivated Bell to destroy her house, fake her own death, and flee. When Ray was arrested, he was wearing John Moe's overcoat 
in Henry Gerholt's watch. Edward Beachley, a journalist, was given a secret assignment to acquire access to a confession and publish it, thus bringing a second, inconsistent Ray account to light. The second account is based on the report that Ray had contacted a Reverend Edwin Shell and provided him with a verbal confession that Shell transcribed and had Ray sign, a document that Shell kept sealed in his personal safe. Beachley attempted to convince Shell to allow him to punish this later confession, but was de denied by both Shell and Shell's wife. However, a separate newspaper published a story with speculation regarding the second confession. Described as worried as to the peace of the families of the victims, Shell offered the confession to Beachley, which was later published. The Beachley narrative, entitled Lamphere's Confession, contains this summary from Beachley. In the confession, Lamphere said that he had killed Mrs. Gunnis and children with an axe, sprinkled the bodies with kerosene, and set fire to them and the house. It gave details of the slain, and told in part in the former murders which occurred at the Gunnis farm, his task usually being the burying of the bodies in the garden. The essential fact, however, was that the murderers were not alive as fugitive. The publication of Lamphere's confession resulted in the subsequent arrest of his accomplice, Elizabeth Smith. The inconsistencies between the two confessions, including the matter of survival of Bell Gunnis, remain historical issues that are not fully resolved. Bell Gunnis was pronounced dead, even though the doctor who performed the postmortem testified that the headless body was five inches shorter and about 50 pounds lighter than Bell. No explanation was provided for what happened to the body's head. Whether Gunnis died in the fire or escaped remained uncertain, although the sheriff blamed the Chicago American reporter for inventing the escaped story. Reported sightings of Bell in the Chicago area continued long after she was declared dead. At the time, police looked into reports of women suspected to be Bell none of which led to her apprehension. In 2008, DNA tests were performed on the headless corpse in an attempt to compare the DNA in the corpse against a sample from a letter Gunnis had sent to one of her victims. But due to its age, the sample was not able to be properly tested. After Bell's crimes came to light, the Gunnis farm became a tourist attraction. Spectators came from across the country to see mass graves and concessions and souvenirs were sold. Moreover, the crime became an acknowledged part of area history. The LaPorte County Historical Society Museum has a permanent Bell Gunnis exhibit. Our next story. It's another listener story from Clint. Thank you for sharing with us. This past week has been one for which I would prefer to forget. Christmas was the worst for me ever in my life and will never be forgotten. I grew up without having a close relationship with my father and I didn't get to see a lot of him because of his job. At the age of 10, 
he and my mother divorced, and further damage was done to the relationship. It was rocky between us until I turned 16, and I got my license. I started to see more of him, and we began to get closer. But by 18 or 19, we were taking off to go on hunting trips and fishing, and I discovered that Mom had not always been truthful about my dad. Now, several years prior to the divorce, they had bought an old farmhouse, and at a very good price. My father remodeled the whole house over the years, and it was nice, but there was always this feeling that something was not quite right. I would get the creeps as a child, and I would never step foot in the cellar. It scared the hell out of me. Some years later, though, I discovered why they got it at such a good price. The elderly couple that had sold it had lost their only son. He had been sent to Vietnam, and after returning home, he was a lot he was like a lot of vets from that war era apparently things become too much for the poor guy and he had went to the cellar and shot himself with a rifle about two years ago me and my dad had sort of a falling out and not spoken during this time this was stupidity on both of our parts i've been trying to get up the nerve to stop and knock on the door but part of his trouble was at his age he was having some mental issues and did not always remember who people were and had a history of meeting people at the door with a gun, so I had been putting it off. On December 22, 2022, I decided to man up and go knock on the door to put an end to the madness. Now, he had remarried in 1989 and had a daughter, my half-sister. This plays a major part to the situation but there was no closeness between I and them, although I had always liked my stepmom and thought that she was a good person. As I drove back the lane to the house, something fell off, heavy and oppressively dark. I thought it was just my nerves. When the house came into full view, I had a bad feeling. There were no cars there. Everything looked abandoned. When I went up to the door, there was no noise or response when I knocked but I felt as if someone was watching me. I walked around the kitchen patio door, and when I looked inside the door, my stomach fell out of me. It was empty, and the interior was gutted. I was able to get in the house, and I was taking video with my iPhone to document the conditions, and it was at this point that I knew my father was gone. By gone, I mean he had passed away. I could hear a voice telling me, He's gone. You're too late. And admittedly, I was feeling totally devastated and out of it. I went through the entire house until I reached the cellar steps. Under any other circumstances, I would have never went into that cellar, especially when I was there alone and absolutely nobody knew I was there. But I felt like something was pulling at me to walk down those steps to the darkness. There is no power on in the house, and I had no flashlight with me just the one on my phone. So I started down the steps, not feeling any fear at the moment, not until I reached the cellar and I turned to my left. I was then hit so hard it felt as if I had to gasp for air just to get any into my lungs. The level of fear went from 0 to 10 instantly. On my phone screen, I could see several bright orbs come at me and stopped directly in front of me for several seconds, then turned and went back the way they came from. But after that, it was solid orbs and anomalies swarming all around me. 
Now there were no open windows or doors, no fans, and it was colder in there than it was outside, which was about 30 degrees, and it had been way cold for weeks. I could hear whispers, and at one point, talking that was loud enough that I had thought someone had walked into the house. I confronted what I suspected was in that cellar for all these years, and I was met with very loud slams and bangs. Upon going back upstairs, the slams and banging continued. I told it that I was not afraid of it anymore, and that I would be back. After going back outside, a vehicle pulled in. Come to find out, it was the new owner. He had just taken possession of the house December 8th from my stepmom. Come to find out through this kind stranger, my dad had passed away several months ago. He died of an evil that needs to be abolished. Cancer. My stepmom had told nobody. My aunts didn't even know that he had passed away. Nobody in the family knew. She placed a house for sale after selling his 57 Ford and gun collection, and apparently everything else, her and my half-sister, are gone into the wind. The listing with the realtor said that the seller refused to have it for sale sign placed on the property. I believe that what is in the house harassed my father for years and influenced many things and may have influenced her actions as well. Since I was at the house, things have begun to occur in my home. More than usual, so I am documenting everything. Three years ago, I was told by two different psychics that I had an attachment and that I had picked it up from a childhood home, and that they felt it had influenced or attempted to influence someone to take their own life. They were absolutely 100% correct. And now for the second listener story, also from Clint. So a couple of weeks ago, I was headed out to my family cemetery, about five miles outside of town. I hadn't been there since a couple of days after Christmas, right after I had learned that my dad had finally lost his battle with lung cancer. I've spent a lot of time at this cemetery in the last few years. I like to go out there and do audio recordings, and just for the fact that it's so peaceful out there, well, it used to be. I've had some really bad experiences out there in the last couple of years. I've gotten some really nasty EVPs, and it's turned into a very dark place at night. But that's a story for another time. Now when I go out there, I always stop at a little country church about a mile down the road. The reason for this is because the church used to belong to my great-grandfather and my great-uncle, both of whom preached there. And I go there, and I ask for their protection and guidance before going to the cemetery. But on this night, I changed my pattern for some reason. Instead of going to the church first, I drove on past the cemetery, about a half a mile to some property that my aunt and uncle owned. There's a small creek that runs along the road. Just before you get to the creek is where my life started out at, the old homestead. Now at the bottom of the hill, the creek crosses under the road and makes a sharp turn to continue following the road. And that turn is what used to be a pretty deep hole. 
My mom and dad grew up right down the road from there, and all of my family used to swim in that hole and fish. Now it's been a very long time since my parents and my uncle and even me have swam there. As a matter of fact, over the years, that hole has filled in and is no more, just a shallow bend in the creek. Back in the day, one of my uncle's high school friends drowned there. My uncle also drowned there, but they were able to revive him, thank God. So when I arrived there, I backed my truck into the drive. I was barely off of the roadway, and I left my headlights on and the motor running. I was only going to be there for a minute. I started to record a video with my phone and was describing why I was going to the cemetery. Now during all of this, at one point, I thought I saw something pop up from the creek and then go back down really quickly. However, I tried to ignore it and I kept going on with my video. After a minute or so, it happened again. I didn't miss a beat and I kept on filming, but noted that it appeared to be a figure of human nature but a grayish-white, kind of skinny, but I didn't see a face. Once again, I kept right on going, trying to ignore what I had seen, and then it happened a third time. This time it looked more gray than white, and there was no face, and at that moment, the feeling of something dark, unfriendly and mad that I was there washed over me, and every hair on my body stood straight on end. I start saying, this isn't good, repeatedly, and then I got the feeling that something aggressive and mad as hell was approaching very quickly. I tried to get out of there as quick as I could, but I wasn't quick enough. Anyone ever get what some call spirit jumped? It's where a spirit or an entity jumps into your body. It's brief most of the time, but not brief enough. Your body goes into survival mode. Adrenaline dumps, but not like a normal adrenaline dump. This is 10 times worse. It may also feel like your breath is sucked right out of your lungs and it's a struggle to breathe any air. It's scary as hell when it happens. You also feel like something evil has reached into your body and grabbed your soul. It's a very demanding warning to get the hell away and they mean business. When I pulled out of there, I headed straight up the road to the church. But before I could get there, I heard a very ominous growl over my left shoulder, and I got hit a second time. This time, it was much worse than the first. I became very vocal and demanded that it get away and get out of my truck, but it stayed until I reached the church. When I pulled in, I called upon my great-grandfather for help. Then I was hit a third time. It was brief, but the point was gotten across to me. I could then feel everything lighten up as they say. The hairs went down and I became relaxed fairly quickly. I left the church and I went back home where I had my daughter bring out my Bible and I didn't go inside until I was certain that whatever it was had left me. The next evening, I went to the family cemetery, stopping at the church first of course. I used the necrophonic app which I use quite a bit from time to time. I didn't even ask about the night before, but I was told that there was an evil at the creek. Stay away from the water. They called it dark water. I had never in almost three years of using that app ever gotten those responses or any mentions of water or dark water. 
and no, I was not under the influence of anything. I take no medications, and other than PTSD, I have no mental health issues. This particular area is pretty rural. The area had a lot of Native American activity and is within 300 feet of a known burial ground, as well as another cemetery that has long been forgotten. As a kid, the woods around this area always seemed to have a dark side. We always felt watched, and when we were playing in the woods around there, there was also a piece of property within a quarter mile that was rumored as being owned by a witch. Our final story comes from YourGhostStories.com. From September of 2007 until April of 2011, I studied history and English online through Lakehead University, located in the small town of Thunder Bay in Northern Ontario. During the first week of December in 2007, I finally finished my midterm exams. After a painstaking weekend of traveling back and forth between the cities of Coburg and Oshawa to complete the exams, we decided to celebrate by spending some time with my great aunt at the Oshawa Shopping Center and getting an early start on the Christmas shopping. By the time the mall was about to close, we left for home. Before driving our great aunt back home, my brother decided to stop for gas. He stepped out of the car to pump, leaving me alone in the car with my aunt. In order to bring up the conversation, I informed her of our summer trip to Gettysburg in August of the same year. She listened to every word interestedly, particularly the instance in which we heard the mysterious sounds of rifles firing during a tour. In response to this, she mentioned one particular incident that she experienced many years prior to our conversation, one in which I was never made aware until that moment. She mentioned that the incident occurred during a trip to Toronto that she had took with my great uncle just before Christmas in 1989. They decided to spend the weekend at a luxury hotel and they reserved a room on the seventh floor. My great uncle, exhausted from the trip, decided to go to sleep early. Not wanting to disturb him, my great-aunt decided to leave the room and take a short walk throughout the hotel. After spending roughly an hour wandering the hotel, absorbing her surroundings and admiring the interior design of the building, she soon lost track of time and decided to head back to their room. The elevator stopped on the seventh floor, and my great-aunt walked nonchalantly back towards her room. She approached her room and began quietly unlocking the door to avoid any possibility of waking my uncle. She abruptly stopped about halfway as she suddenly felt the most uncomfortable sensation that someone was watching her. She turned apprehensively to her right and immediately realized that her suspicions were correct. Standing in the middle of the corridor was a young boy that she assumed to be around the age of nine. She mentioned vividly remembering the boy standing motionless with a completely blank expression on his face. Feeling awkward, she asked him if he was alright or if he was in need of some help. Her question went completely unacknowledged and the boy just continued to stand in the same spot, 
staring off into the void as if his full attention was permanently fixated on some mysterious psychological entity. My great aunt proceeded to turn back to unlock her door. She decided to ask the uncanny juvenile one last time if he needed something, only to discover that he was no longer present. She found herself completely alone in the hallway. Despite feeling extremely uneasy, she decided not to wake my great-uncle to inform him of the encounter and promptly went to sleep. The following day, she decided to head to the hotel bar for a glass of wine. She struck up a conversation with the bartender and informed him of the bizarre incident. She was reluctant at first to share the information with him, concerned that he would not believe her. The bartender had no issues believing her. He merely smiled and said, Yeah, he's been here for years. My great aunt never uncovered any explanation beyond the experience or what may have possibly been going through the boy's mind. Unfortunately, I have long since forgotten the name of the hotel that they stayed at, and I may never discover the truth for myself. Well, that is going to do it for today. Thank you all for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed the stories. If you could, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really helps others to find us. Don't forget to share with friends and family. Make sure that you join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. I just hit over 300 subscribers on YouTube, and I would love to get to 500 sometime soon. Once I do hit 500 subscribers, I will upload an exclusive episode to YouTube only. If you do enjoy the podcast, please consider helping to support the show by subscribing on Patreon, with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. Once again, thank you all for listening, and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.